Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we'll be looking at Phantoms of Fear, the 28th book in the fighting fantasy series, which was released in 1987. Before that, a very quick update on my own game book. I finished writing it, I've done the first edit, and now I'm embroiled in the really exciting bit where you make sure everything works right and the sections all point to the right place. It's thrilling stuff to be sure, but an essential part of the process, unless your name happens to be J.H. Brennan, when it's a sort of optional extra. I've very much enjoyed trying to put my own spin on a classic fantasy adventure. If you'd like a copy when it comes out, alongside all of my other nonsense that's already come out, then all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledge as little as a single English pound to join my heroic crew of patrons who keep the lights on and the bonus episodes coming. Speaking of bonus episodes, I did extra ones over the summer because I knew I probably wouldn't have much of an opportunity to record bonus material over the winter. My course has just restarted and time is suddenly a scarce commodity. I'll try and fit one in before Christmas because I do have some really cool stuff that I want to cover, but I'm afraid I can't make a firm commitment to that. Um, Hopefully you've enjoyed the extra bonus material over the summer and it will almost certainly restart on the same schedule in the new year. With the housekeeping out of the way, let's dive into Phantoms of Fear. Phantoms of Fear was written by British classicist Robin Waterfield, and this is his third book for the series. The first one, Rebel Planet, was one of the better science fiction books, but that's not saying a great deal. His second, Masks of Mayhem, was interesting, a real curate's egg of a book, with some brilliant design, solid world building, but marred by some frustrating choices and a brutal level of difficulty. Like that book, Phantoms of Fear is set on the continent of Cool, still a part of the increasingly fleshed out fighting fantasy world, but the bit where guest writers could play around without damaging the carefully constructed Alansia, which is where Jackson and Livingstone had done the bulk of their world building. Cool therefore has a much less coherent feel, with books like Scorpion Swamp and Sword of the Samurai offering very different takes on fantasy fiction. One personal highlight of Phantoms of Fear is the presence of one of my favourite fantasy artists, Ian Miller, who provides both the cover art and the internal illustrations. He is a legend in fantasy gaming circles, having provided some beloved artwork to various Games Workshop releases, as well as covers for Citadel of Chaos, House of Hell, and Creature of Havoc, which are all great. His cover art here is typically redolent of Albrecht Dürer, as we see a surreal green phantasmal face from which various other spectral faces are emanating. It's really good and highly appropriate to the theme of the book, which deals with both the dreaming world and the waking world. Let's have a look at this system. We are playing an elf for this adventure, which is a first. I'm intrigued as to how or if this will impact play. As we saw with Creature of Havoc, changing the nature of the protagonist can have a strong impact on the feel of the game, and I'm hoping that our elven nature is more than just window dressing. We have skill, stamina and luck, all present and correct as usual. We don't have any provisions, boo hiss, but we are assured that we may be able to find some on our adventure. We do have the classic skill, stamina and luck potions to select as well to uh, restore our stats to normal. I'm going to select the stamina potion for this adventure 
as I have no idea how much healing I will be needing. We also have a new stat, power, which is generated by a d6 plus 6. You use power as an alternative form of skill while lucid dreaming, and it's also used to power the various spells that you, as a magic elven dream person, have access to. So there's six spells, they can only be cast in the waking world, and each costs you a point of power. So relying on magic will make you less able to navigate dreams. That's an interesting dichotomy, and I'm hoping it doesn't act as a strong disincentive to actually using magic. I know in tabletop games you have to be very careful with systems in which one activity the player wants to do debuffs another activity the player wants to do. You see that a bit with luck in fighting fantasy. It's rare to use it in fights except as a last resort because losing that point of luck is such a big deal in a world where a failed luck roll can mean instant death. The spells themselves are a nice mix of utility effects. Protect turns you invisible. Illusion changes how things look. Weaken drains force stamina from a target. Levitation makes you fly but not very well. Finding reveals secrets and treasure and fire creates various forms of conflagration. They all seem like they could be useful, which is good. My character, who I have given the appropriately elven name Fentanyl Alaska, is as follows. Skill 11, Stamina 23, Luck 10, Power 10, and Potion of Stamina, and I guess the omnipresent sword and leather armour that seems to come as absolute standard when you're adventuring. I haven't actually checked, but I Bet you it's there. Let's get into Phantoms of Fear. Background. You wake up suddenly, shivering despite the warm midsummer night air. You are grateful to see the familiar walls and trappings of your hut. You know that you are secure, surrounded by the rest of your tribe, and deep in Affen Forest. The dream from which you awoke momentarily escapes you. What was it? Then memory floods in on you. It was a dream of ordinary, everyday life in your village. Elves are out hunting, tilling the ground, collecting roots for medicine and food, cooking and repairing huts. You could not see yourself in the dream, but you were surveying the scene. Suddenly, a voice spoke, a voice which simultaneously made everyone look up from their work and frightened you. It took you a moment to realise why it filled you with fear. It was your own voice. But what words are these that you are speaking? I must leave for a while, you say to your fellow elves. May the gods of the forest protect you all while I am gone. The demon prince Ishtrar is just beginning to gather a force of damned, chaotic and evil creatures beneath our forest. He plans to overrun the entire world, starting with the wood elves. His rule over his army is so cruel that even his foul minions would rebel if they could, but Ishtra holds them in his sway by magical power. Thus, he must be overcome. If his sway is broken, his army will have no organisation and power. They will be reduced to civil war between themselves. His army is not yet large, so I must go now to face him while there is still a chance of penetrating his defences. May I farewell? and fare you all well until I return, if I return. Otherwise we will meet again in Tiernan Og, the island realm of the sun of the sea of the land of youth, where all must go when their time comes. Hippies. They're hippies, basically. I mean, I can't hold it against them. 
I'm only ever one step away from just throwing up my hands in horror and running away to live in the woods. The only thing that stops me is my total lack of any kind of skill for living in the woods. Slightly unusual to receive the call to action from ourselves, but uh, I guess it's a nice signal that this is going to be a little bit of a surreal, a little bit of a strange experience. At this point, you woke up. You now take stock of the dream. You know full well that it is a message from your gods, yet never before have they chosen to communicate by having you speak their words. You realise that this must be their way of impressing upon you both the urgency of the task and the fact that you, and only you, have been chosen for the mission. But the idea terrifies you. As a demon prince, Ishtar cannot be killed by any weapon of earthly race. Even the most magical sword of the High Elves would not strike him down. So what can your lesser powers do against him? Nevertheless, you have been commanded to go, and you put your faith in the gods. They would not so command you if there was no hope. You decide to go back to sleep, to see if you can dream a dream which will give you more information about the noble and awesome task facing you. See, that is an approach to problem solving that I have repeatedly used throughout my life. When in doubt, just go back to sleep. So we're now on to the first section, and there is a typically baroque and dark illustration on the facing page of a forest that is very strange and weird looking with the trademark Ian Miller faces popping out of the trees and a general sense of nature in flux and possessed by dark and strange forces. It's great. Really, really good. So we're beginning with a dream. That's kind of cool. In your dream, you walk through Affen Forest, yet it is both familiar and unfamiliar. The trees seem more alive, even more than they normally appear to your trained wood elf senses. The tiny noises of twigs and shrubs seem magnified. A vivid force plays over the surface of the trunks, being sustained by the vibrant, slow earth below, and spreading to the smallest shoot on the topmost branch. Even while you dream, you are aware that this is a vision of the life force, which your people called Maella. It gives all things life, and a minute fragment of it is your power to dream and make magic. This is already much better written than either of his previous books. Very much enjoying this, particularly after the very underwritten Star Strider and the well-written but concise falcon, colon, the renegade lord. You do not recognise the particular part of the forest you are in. Perhaps it exists only in your dream, but perhaps it has a real counterpart. Affen forest is vast, but only a small remnant of the one forest of old, when the three continents of Titan were unified. In your dream, branches bend down from the trees and usher you onwards along a trail which opens up in front of you. You are content to be following the trail, but you also detect urgency in the prodding of the branches. Where are the trees leading you? As soon as the question is formed in your mind, it is answered. The trees stop pushing you onwards, and you find yourself at the meeting of three ways. One way is the trail you have been following. The other two extend in different directions, forking like the angle of a serpent's tongue. 
oh dear there's at least another two pages of this opening section so uh the brief background section i fear may have been lulling me into a false sense of security so uh so strap in for some more narration the trees have stopped urging you so this is where they were guiding you in your dream you know that the crossroads is more than just a meeting of three ways the past behind you symbolizes your past life and now with your heart beating fast and with your mind strangely calm you have a choice of two ways onward but where do they lead at the moment they both look like green sward tracks through a still forest then you notice for the first time it has only just appeared a statue standing on the exact spot where three ways meet she is a beautiful goddess but in human form and you know neither her name nor her function she is completely impassive her arms are folded across her chest and billowing robes shroud her body though made of stone her eyes seem to bore into your mind and read your thoughts i can't think of anything more nightmarish than someone reading my thoughts which cycle through self-involvement inanity and inappropriate horniness on a more or less endlessly repeating cycle your thoughts of course are which way you should turn at this junction the statue's arms unfold and a small black dog which she was cradling in her arms and had been hidden amongst her full sleeves leaps down and runs yelping past you and away through the trees behind you but you do know that whatever the meaning of this the dog is not showing you your path and you remain watching the statue you see if it was me in an actual dream i would have been running after the dog immediately as soon as it appears i'm going dog and running after it her arms continue to unfold so slowly that it seems to take eternity and meanwhile her robes take on the glow of a pale but brilliant blue and her face unlocks gently into an enigmatic smile finally her arms are simply pointing down each of the routes between which you have to choose you look first down the one to your left instead of the plain forest path lacking significant features which you had seen before there is now a highway that seems contrary even to your dream expectations to open up the more distant it gets the end if there is an end is indefinite but such a sense of health and well-being issues from it that your heart is warmed and the trees as they recede into the distance lose many of their tree-like features but take on the essence of vitality down the other path however the trees and woodland shrubs become more and more grotesque until they are empty shells not truly alive but sustained by some fell force which exudes such a malignant power that your nostrils are assailed by the rotten odour of it as soon as your mind registers the full horror of the putrescence in your dream you see its source a wide area of the forest has collapsed into a pit whose bottom you cannot see but whatever is there deep underground is causing the blight of the forest your forest you see now that the statue bears in either hand duplicates of your trusty sword telessa the beautiful goddess fades into invisibility leaving a last glimpse of her enigmatic smile and letting the two swords fall to stick quivering in the turf will you take up the one to your left and proceed towards the hearth and health of the forest or will you take the one to the right and investigate what is causing your precious forest to suffer so this raises an enormous quandary at the outset because long-time listeners will know if it's a straight left or right choice we're gonna go left however my thinking brain goes my whole mission is to try and destroy ishtar 
And to do that, I need to know precisely what he's up to or it's up to. So I really should be going right. But I am nothing if not slavishly committed to a bit. So I am, of course, going to go left. Even though you are already dreaming, your journey along this path seems dreamlike. But it is the smooth gliding motion of your body which gives this impression, not the dullness of your senses. On the contrary, the further you go along this path, the more alert you become, and the more aware of every colour, smell and noise, of the springy feel of the turf beneath your light elf feet, and even of a gradual increasing richness of the atmosphere. Telessa gleams in your hand and seems to reflect an unknown source of light. The end of this journey comes unexpectedly. You are passing through a clearing when your feet simply refuse to go any further. You look around, evergreen trees surround the clearing and tower to the sky. As you watch, their tops bend over and form a dark canopy over your head. Then you notice six white elder trees in the middle of the clearing, and you know that you must stand in the centre of the ring they form. I'm enjoying very much these dream depictions. They feel dream-like enough to conjure that sense of shifting and surreal landscapes but without what most dreams actually has which is in my experience anyway is a nebulous feeling of anxiety akin to being late for an exam as soon as you stand in the middle of the trees a voice speaks is it from the trees the air or merely inside your mind it is impossible to tell but the voice though quiet is crystal clear because there is utter calm as if you and everything around you were holding its breath. Eldenarin, save the forest. You have seen and smelled the suffering it is enduring. Yet this is only the smallest fraction of what it and the whole world will suffer if the evil underground is released. Prepare yourself if you will undertake this burden. For now I tell you this. Remember this sacred spot. Gain one power. You now awaken from the dream. And maybe this was a good choice after all. Maybe going left has seen me right. And awesomely, power, unlike skill, stamina, and luck, can exceed our initial score. So that's cool. Takes us up to power 11. Very healthy. If you can hear any noises in the background, my cat has just embarked on a mammoth washing session. Genuinely mammoth. And just a moment ago shook his head and sprayed my laptop with really a lot of cat dribble. So we've woken up from our dream. When you are fully awake, you know what you must do. Somewhere in the forest is an area of foul blight, which marks the entrance to Ishtra's underground stronghold. You must find it, enter the pit, seek out Ishtra and do battle with him. This will be an immense task. A quest which, whether you succeed or fail, the Wood Elves will sing about as long as they have voices to sing, although presumably that will be a much smaller span of time should you fail than if you win. Like they may still be composing the second verse by the time the uh, demons come to the door. It is a particularly daring undertaking for a Wood Elf, for your kind do not normally stray more than half a day's journey from home. You call a council of the tribal elders and explain your task. They protest that the mission is impossible, but you do not allow such thoughts to enter your mind. You tell them that you must go. You make arrangements for the protection of the tribe during your absence. After embracing your closest friends, and many seem to be such friends under these circumstances, you prepare to leave. All you need is your sword, Telessa, and a backpack. 
you do not take any provisions because, as a wood elf, you are confident of finding enough to eat as long as you are in the forest. I mean, realistically, you're never that far away from a Greg's. Which way should you go? Lake Necros lies not far to the east, so you must choose between heading roughly north, south or west. I fundamentally believe that all writers of adventure game books instinctively put the exit in the north. So we're going to go north. Without a backwards glance, you set off north. There are few true paths this deep in the forest, but even when the sun is not visible, there are plenty of signs to show a wood elf which way is which. Although you often have to digress to avoid some obstacle or other, you keep to a generally northern direction. After half a day's journeying, it is time to rest and eat. You look for berries while you continue walking, but there are not many. The presence of more light off to your left tells you that there is a glade there, and you think it may have shrubs such as bilberry growing in it. Do you want to turn left towards the glade or carry on northwards? I guess we'll go and look for a delicious afternoon repast of berries? Sure enough, there are bilberries in the glade. You also find edible toadstools, wild parsnips, and the fern called skunk bear's tongue, which elves value as both nutritious and refreshing. I mean, it doesn't sound particularly appetising. Mmm, do you fancy some skunk bear's tongue? I'm all right, thanks. There is only just enough food to make a single meal for you, however. It seems that the animals have already removed much of it. More than they could eat, you think. It looks as though they have been storing food, which is unusual for this time of year. It occurs to you that they probably know instinctively that some peril is nearby and are preparing for it. After your meal, you decide to rest against a log. Will you stay awake or let yourself drift into the dream world? When it worked out so well for us last time, I think we'll go a-dreaming. When I get those sweet, sweet clues... In your dream, you visit an unfamiliar place. There is a sandy arena spotted with blood in which two heroes are battling to the death. A crowd roars its appreciation and the whole show is overseen by a cruel-looking man dressed in rich clothes. The appearance of these humans and humanoids is strange to you. You hear the richly garbed man speak to his neighbour. Whoever survives the arena of death will be my champion. I'll have the last laugh at that brother of mine. You wonder what this means. Is it an illusion or a vision of distant lands? Well, it certainly is. It's a vision of the opening of Trial of the Champions. Nice little tie-in to a previous book in the series. like it. The harsh sun which bakes the dream arena is suddenly blotted out by a vast dragon. But this is merely the reflection in your dream of the shadow cast by the giant bloodhawk, which is swooping down on your sleeping body. Pain of its talons ripping your thighs jerks you back to wakefulness. Deduct one skill and two stamina points. By the time you have drawn your sword, it is swooping down on you again. But you have no time to cast a spell. So, skill now 10, stamina now 21. Seems as though the good decision-making that I started with has deserted me in favour of my usual flailing. So let's have a look at the giant bloodhawk. Even while you are steadying yourself to meet the bloodhawk's diving attack, the thought passes through your mind that it is far from its usual open habitat. Could it be a spy sent by Ishtar? Then there is no more time for thinking, only doing. The giant bloodhawk has a skill of seven, the stamina of twelve, which seems excessive. So, uh, for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. 
I have defeated the giant Bloodhawk. It reduced me to 17 stamina. So we win and leave the clearing and continue north. As you proceed northwards, you see more and more evidence that the woodland creatures are preparing for Ishtar's imminent invasion. It is not just that they have been gathering much of the available food, you also notice that their behaviour patterns are different. There are fewer animals than usual, as if many have already fled. Normally timid creatures snarl at you from bushes. Birds twitter in fright from the topmost branches. You begin to regret not bringing any provisions from home, especially since it is likely that the closer you get to Ishtar's pit, the more the forest animals will have eaten or gathered the available food. See, I knew we would regret the lack of provisions. Nothing good happens without bringing a plum duff and a packet of beef and onion crisps with you. You always knew that you would need to carry food when you were underground, but now it seems sensible to take time to gather provisions for your whole journey, both overground and underground. So before we go to the exit paragraph, we have the opportunity to mess about in the forest trying to find more revolting sounding fungus to eat. As you search for provisions you may well have to fight some forest creature either because you're trying to deprive it of some food or simply because it is aggressive. Roll one die to find out what creature if any you fight. So let's roll that die. Uh, there's a two in six chance of getting no encounters. There's a wolf, a moose and a bear all of which are pretty easy fights but there is also a forest giant who's got a skill nine stamina nine stat line so that's the one we want to avoid anything but a five is fine ideally a one or six which is the no encounters two that is a wolf with a skill of seven and a stamina of six probably the best of the fight encounters once again i'm gonna roll some dice I defeated the wolf without suffering any damage and I get to roll two dice to determine how many meals worth of provisions I'm able to find. Let's hope that a lot of these critters have been foraging for bean and cheese melts. So I get five provisions. Pretty rubbish on 2d6 but hey ho. I'm just relieved to have my beloved provisions back. So uh, let's go onwards. There's a nice little sort of set piece. I like the idea of giving you the provisions but in a slightly different way to make it part of the story it makes sense to generate them randomly that's quite fun uh, and also taking it as an opportunity to tell you something about the world that's really really good advanced writing very much like it the route you are following takes you past a death dripper the sensitive roots of this tall tree-like plant detect the vibrations caused by any creature's footsteps and the plant immediately drips a fast-acting poison from its sickly yellow flowers test your luck so we have a luck of 10 oh snake eyes can't get any luckier than that luck now down to nine the poison fails to make contact with your skin but some may have entered your backpack test your luck again if you are unlucky two lots of provisions have been ruined if you are lucky you suffer no loss so we test our luck again another snake eyes awesome so luck now down to eight we get to hang on to all of our provisions which is cool because we've only got five whatever the outcome you must now decide whether to continue north or veer somewhat to the west i will veer i think i love a good veer as you walk along you notice signs that this part of the forest is occupied by some other humanoid creatures 
At first, you see only the occasional broken twig which could have been caused by something else, but a footprint in a muddy patch of ground makes you certain. You cast a finding spell to see if there is danger nearby, press on regardless, or turn back to the north to keep out of the way of whatever it is. Whew, that is a good decision to be presented with. I've not done any magic yet, so I'm going to use my point of power, taking my power down to 10 to cast a finding spell. You detect some danger ahead, but your impression is that it is not alive, not even in the sense that plants are alive. It is the sort of impersonal danger of an avalanche, for instance. Will you continue your westward journey, but cautiously, or will you turn back to the north to avoid whatever the danger is? Only an idiot casts a spell to find out if there's danger, and then continues into the danger, having determined that there is danger. The spell is literally there to warn me of danger. It's done that, so... I think I'm going to have to listen to it, even though, obviously, my intense curiosity and nosiness means that I'm pretty tempted to continue on west. But no, we are going to listen to the magic. We spent a PowerPoint on this. Let's listen to it and go north. You see no further signs of humanoid life, but after a while the ground begins to get boggy. You turn west, but the going is still very unsound. Although wood elves can tread more lightly than any other race, even your feet are beginning to sink into the brown mud which is covered with an oily film. To make matters worse, night is drawing in. Will you plough on through the mire or turn back south for a while to avoid it? Do I want to stumble through a bog in pitch darkness? Or would I rather not do that? I think I'd rather not do that, so let's turn back south a bit. To your great relief, the bog soon gives way to firmer ground. You turn west again, but travel for only another half hour before the deepening dusk persuades you to make camp for the night. There is a huge fallen tree in the hollow of whose roots you could sleep, or you could climb up another vast tree and camp in the branches. I love the idea of camping in the branches of a tall tree. In real life, I'm quite bad with heights. Not the worst, but pretty bad with heights. So the idea of climbing a tree and sleeping in it is simultaneously terrifying but also kind of appealing as something I'm never going to get to do in real life. So we will climb a tree. On your way up the tree a branch breaks when you step on it and you fall to the ground. Roll one die. On a one to three you are not high up and your fall only wins you. Reduce your stamina by one. On a four to six you are high enough for a nasty fall. Reduce your stamina by four for a couple of cracked ribs. Okay. Wood elves ought to be really good at climbing trees, but apparently not. So we get a two, that's good. That means we only lose one stamina. Stamina now down to 16. You take this as an omen and decide to sleep among the roots of the old fallen tree. For a while, you sleep dreamlessly, but towards dawn, you start to dream. In your dream, you are crossing a vast ice-bound plain. A bitter, merciless wind howls down from a mountain range ahead of you and cuts through your clothing as if you were naked. Then your sight of the mountains is cut off by a blizzard. The snow, driven before the wind, stings your eyes and blurs your vision. The howling of the wind changes its tone and becomes more definite and more sinister. A bulky form seems to be solidifying out of the falling snow. You will have to fight this snow ghost. It has a power of 14. So, is this a nice little nod to Caverns of the Snow Witch? I feel as though I would normally not think that, just because any landscape can be turned into a dream landscape. But what I do think 
having done the Trial of the Champions reference earlier and Caverns of the Snow Witch being another Ian Livingstone book, maybe, maybe. It's certainly something to keep an eye out for. Uh, the Snow Ghost has an illustration. It's great. I mean, if you want someone to draw you a horrible face, semi-materialising out of a blizzard, Ian Miller is very much your man. And yeah, it's great. So the Snow Ghost has a power score of 14, which means we must fight it with our power of 10. And you fight it by rolling two dice. On a 2 to 7, it reduces our power by 2. If you roll 8 to 12, you reduce its power by 2. And you continue this until either power score reaches 0. It's trying to thump us with its fists. We're trying to fight it with a club. So I don't think it's very likely that we're going to defeat the Snow Ghost. But nonetheless, I'm going to roll some dice. The Snow Ghost has battered the ever-living heck out of me. I managed to reduce it to 12 power. I have to say that this 50-50 combat is not the most thrilling and does give me fire asterix wolf flashbacks anyway we have been defeated but it doesn't mean that we've died we just get to go to another paragraph howling horribly the snow ghost pummels you to the ground with frozen fists you wake up with a start sit up and crack your head on a thick root of the tree which is sheltering you lose one stamina point restore your power score to what it was before the illusory combat took place so power back to 10 stamina now down to 15 i'm doing a good job of chipping away at the old stamina but we've got plenty of healing so i'm not yet concerned you rest a while and then prepare to set off again when the half light of dawn has yielded to full daylight but just as you are getting to your feet the weevil man in whose tree root home you spent the night returns from his nighttime foraging weevil men are mutants which are so misshapen as to resemble a cross between a beetle and a human that is a nasty name to give to a mutant they have tough natural armor on their backs and tend to drop to all fours to protect themselves they are driven long ago from civilized society and banished to the hidden places of the world such as deep in affen forest so uh yeah, not only giving them a mean nickname, they've also been thrown out for, I don't know, being ugly? Is that where we are? Like, people don't like looking at ugly things, so go away? That seems unbelievably harsh. As survivors in the hard world of Titan, they are far from cowardly fighters. This one drops his pack and hurls himself at you, wielding a hatchet. Though the Weevil Man has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 11, every time you win an attack round... On a 1 to 3, the Weevil Man has managed to take your blow on his natural armour and sustains only one point of stamina loss. So, skill 8, stamina 11, this could be a long one. The dice are getting a proper workout this adventure. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Weevil Man. It was a very tough fight in the end, that really big stamina score and the fact that half the time I was only doing one damage meant that the combat lasted for about three weeks and I was reduced to five stamina points. So I am going to scoff two portions of provisions, turning my stamina to 13. Good job I passed an eggy bread tree 
while I was out foraging because a couple of rounds of eggy bread seemed to have set me up a treat. Oh, dear me, that was a tough fight. But hey, we've we've made it. On we go. You look in the Weevil Man's pack to see if you can add to your store of provisions, but the crawling maggoty contents make your stomach heave. I mean, getting towards a beggar's chooser's situation, given that I'm very low on stamina and low on provisions, but hey, you may take the hatchet, however, if you want to. I do want to. You then resume your westward journey. The morning passes without much incident, but you notice how the further west you travel, the more cautious the forest wildlife becomes of any intrusion, even that of a wood elf, who is normally considered to be just another denizen of the forest. This gives you the confidence that you are heading in the right direction. In the late afternoon, you start to climb a range of hills which are just as thickly wooded as any other part of Affen Forest. Add one luck point for getting this far through the forest. Luck now nine. The rock of the hills is exposed in places. Boulders litter the ground and you pass quite a few small caves. You realise that it would not take much searching to find one large enough to spend the night in. Will you do this or not? I feel like from The Hobbit onwards, spending the night in a cave has always been a terrible, terrible idea. But again, I used to want to live in a cave, something fierce when I was five. So... I'm gonna, I'm gonna chance it. I'm gonna chance it. You soon find a suitable cave. You can see far enough in to tell that it is not occupied, at least not by anything visible. But there are also signs that it has been recently used by some animal. Gnawed bones litter the ground, and there is a lingering, unfamiliar animal smell. Will you spend the night in this cave or look elsewhere? I think we'll look elsewhere. I think gnawed bones is a sign that whatever's there is carnivorous and presumably reasonably large. In the gathering gloom of a cloudy night, you can find nowhere else to rest. Deduct one luck. So, luck back down to eight. You can either return to the cave or journey all night with occasional fitful naps. I guess we return to the cave. You gather some logs and uproot several bushes to make a screen across the mouth of the cave. This won't fool the cave's occupant if it returns, but it will give you advance warning of its return since it would make a noise while removing the screen. You do not sleep well, since you are constantly half expecting to hear the animal coming back, but it doesn't. Only one brief vision deepens your otherwise shallow sleep, but it is a dream of great and awesome beauty. You see yourself standing in the centre of a ring formed by six pools, which you know instinctively are bottomless. Two of the pools are filled with liquid fire, which continually changes shape and colour, and seems to form recognisable images, but they are gone before you can identify them, and a new image has taken the place of the other, forever lost. Two of the pools are filled with water. In your dream you look into one of these pools, and know that the water is burning cold, though it does not freeze over. You see reflected in the pool a dark, star-studded night sky. These are not the familiar constellations which circle Titan. The last two pools arranged opposite each other, as the other pair are two, are funnels for mighty winds. One pool is exhaling and the other inhaling, as if they were the breath of the world, and the strengths of their blasts would either suck you into the fathomless depth or blow you into the heavens. Gain two power points. Power now twelve. Excellent. That was a lovely dream. Like it. Great imagery. Really well written. The descriptive passages in this have been uniformly good, I think. 
In the morning, when you wake up, you tear the screen from the mouth of the cave. Dawn light floods in from the sun, which has risen just over the tops of the trees in the forest plain below. You can now see more of the cave than you could last night. And you realise that it goes deeper into the mountain than you had thought. At the back of the cave, screened by a boulder, a narrow tunnel winds away into darkness. It's so narrow that you would have to wriggle through, pushing your backpack and sword in front of you. You can feel no draught from the tunnel, nor is there any indication that it might lead anywhere. Will you explore the death murder tunnel or continue up the hillside? I think I will continue up the hillside. That sounds like an absolutely horrendous place to spend time. I'd rather go to Luton. Although, if you told me it was the tunnel or Daventry, I'd have to think about that one for a while. The last stretches of the hill are hard going. The trees are thinner, scree covers the slopes and provides little or no soil for roots, and little or no, say, footing for a traveller. The trees which line the ridge are bent into weird shapes as if by a constant westerly wind. Eventually you arrive panting at the crest itself. You lie down on the ground to survey the scene below you. The western slope of the range of hills descends fairly gently into a valley where all seems to be peace and harmony. The trees there still seem to be clothed in spring green, but this fresh copse ends with shocking abruptness in terrain which is unlike anything you have seen before, awake or in your worst nightmares. You realise that you are looking out over the blighted part of the forest which your dream revealed to you. It is considerably larger than you thought it would be. It stretches for kilometres. Empathy knows no distance. And as a wood elf, you can feel the pain of the suffering forest, even though you are still some way from it. What lies before your eyes is like a mockery of the forest you knew and loved. There are trees all right, although many areas have been devastated as if by fire or by a horde of careless axe-wielding dwarves. In contrast to the clarity of the air where you are, and in the pleasant valley below, the cursed region in the distance is shrouded by a murky haze, which rolls and seethes with a chaotic life of its own. But your observations of the scene are cut short by a sudden harsh cry, which rips the still air, silences the birds twittering in the trees above you, and sends a spurt of chill fear into your heart. You jump in alarm. Will you run and hide from whatever vast being may be the source of this sound or stay where you are? So there is a picture evoking the weird woods, I think. It is full-on classic Ian Miller. Just a twisted nightmare writhing of faces and bowls and strange protrusions beautifully inked yeah it's great it's really good however in terms of the decision staying where we are sounds stupid we're going to give this sound a good running and hiding from that'll teach it unfortunately a borkut which was nearby has the same idea as you you and this shaggy ape meet head-on in a frantic dash for cover Borkets are usually timid creatures, but this one is terrified and will fight for its life. It kicks and gouges and pummels with its powerful arms and legs. Its high skill score reflects its ability to leap out of your reach. The Borkett has a skill of 8, which is fine, and a stamina of 11, another massive meaty boy. 
or girl. If the Borkit ever wins two consecutive attack rounds against you, you lose your footing and tumble some way down the slope. You must deduct one extra stamina point before resuming the fight. Okay, so for the umpteenth time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. The Borkut is defeated. It reduced me to nine stamina points. So I'm going to be a little bit of a rules lawyer and claim that I've got time to eat some fish and chips and a portion of sarg paneer before turning to face this screaming thing, whatever it is. So that puts my stamina back up to 17 and reduces my provisions to one. There is no sign of any living creature that might have uttered the unearthly cry you heard. While you watch from the hill, however, the swirling haze which covers the blighted forest suddenly leaps into greater motion, and even though you are far away, you are simultaneously struck by a furious blast of sorcerous wind, which is, as we all know, the worst kind of wind. The kind of wind you probably get from eating fish and chips and sarg paneer for your lunch. The wind knocks you off your feet. Test your luck. My luck is eight, so we get seven. Doing well on these luck rolls. Luck now down to seven, however. At the moment the wind struck, you were fortunately breathing out, so none of the evil blast entered your lungs. You continue your journey on all fours. It is some time before you dare to pick yourself up and proceed as normal through the trees. You wonder whether the blast of wind was directed by some intelligent mind towards you in person, or whether it was the instinctive response of evil towards good. You realise that, however hazardous your journey has been up till now, the dangers have been familiar. Once you reach the blighted land, however, you suspect that you will enter an uncharted region of unknown terror. Uh, yeah, it just directs me straight to another section. This is quite busy with um, sections that just point straight to other sections, which is, it's just a part of adventure game book design, but I'm going to be really interested digging into it to find out why it's got so many, because there's a couple of different reasons. One is that your structure is really complicated. One is that your structure is really simple. Really complicated structures mean that there's often lots of different ways to get to specific sections that are kind of nodes and obviously really simple structures just don't have many nodes it's just a series of sections arranged broadly in a line before long you are at the foot of the hills and you enter the glade whose spring greenery you admired from above there is no doubt in your mind that this is an enchanted place containing the power of good the air is fresh and sweet small flowers dapple the sward and the trees mainly silver birches are filled with trilling birds you have no idea whose enchantment the place is under, but you can guess why it is there. It is a bastion against the evil of the blasted lands beyond. You revel in the pleasant atmosphere as you stroll through the trees. Soon you come to a fair-sized pool which is fed by a bubbling brook. Will you drink from the pool, bathe in it, or avoid any contact? I think I'll have a little wash. It's been a few days. I'm someone who likes to shower daily. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to take the opportunity... I'm also somewhat influenced by the fact that there's a pool that's good to bathe in in Creature of Havoc and Waterfield is throwing in what I think are deliberate references to earlier books in a way that's quite clever. The water is clear and refreshing. It is nice to wash off the dust of your journey. 
You may add two luck and two stamina points. If you are infected by the spores of the itching powder plant, you may also restore the lost skill point. I haven't been, but that sounds terrible. Nothing worse than an itch you can't scratch. So, stamina now 19, luck now 9. Then you rest on the bank in the warm sun and drift off to sleep. In your dream, the fairy folk who tend this enchanted garden appear to you. They tell you that they are the secret children of Galana, goddess of plants and fertility. They dance and teach you many things about plants that even the wood elves do not know. Finally, they invite you to stay with them, to combat evil by tending their garden of good. It is a sweet temptation, especially to a wood elf. Roll one die on a one to five. I guess we stay and our adventure ends on a six. We leave. Let's roll that die and hope for a six. This does feel like an instant kill. Well, not so much a kill, an instant sentencing to landscape gardening in perpetuity, which, to be fair, is almost as bad. A five so close for the six. Let's have a look. Okay, no, it turns out that uh, the one to five is the continue with the adventure result, which is good. You harden your resolve and spurn the offer of the fairies. Your destiny lies in more direct action. You awaken from the dream and find that the glade has vanished. You are right on the border of the blighted land. All that is left of the enchanted glade is a single elder tree. The tree is obviously magical. Your attention is drawn to its branches, in particular because of their regular arrangement. You note that there are exactly 22 branches. Note this down on your adventure sheet. All but one are normal leafy boughs, but the other is silver and gleams with its own inner light. You pluck it, stow it in your backpack, and take your first step into Ishtar's cruel kingdom. Silver branch, 22. That, I'm sure, will turn out to be useful later. I have to say, I'm really enjoying this. After only a few steps in the corrupt forest, you know that something is wrong. It is not just the sense of evil, which you will get used to as you would to a bad smell, which is not noticed after a while. There is something more. Something within yourself. You will find that from here on in your adventure, you are unable to cast any spells. One of Ishtra's defences is to prevent any magic except his own being effective in his domain. You retain your power score, however. There may yet be some use for it. Did I get to cast? I got to cast one spell. One spell. Still, fair enough. Good way to raise the stakes. As you walk forward, the evil mist which you saw from the hillside seethes around you as if urging you to return. Lightning plays over to your right. A tall pine throttled by ivy which is wriggling even now looms in your path. From your survey from the hillside, you know that this blighted part of the forest is almost circular in shape, spreading out from a centre, which must be where the entrance lies, to Ishtar's underground stronghold. All you have to do is follow the steady worsening of the blight, and you will reach your goal. One obstacle at a time, however. You have reached one of the patches of bare ground where the trees have rotted away to nothingness. Will you cross the clearing or walk around it keeping to the trees? I will walk around it keeping to the trees. Thank you so much. The rot which has created the clearing has also started to affect the trees on the edge of the clearing. You step on something squelchy and a foul smell rises. When you look down you see that it was a root rotted from the inside by the evil in the soil. And then... Was it a trick of the shifting half-light of this place? Or did that root move? No. 
It was not your imagination, for now several roots are squirming towards you, dripping noxious slime, and now they are joined by a dozen more, and now more. You must hack your way through these roots. If you have a hatchet, which I do, you can add one to your attack strength for each round, as you wield your sword in one hand and a hatchet in the other. Full-on ranger dual-wielding. Love it. The roots have a skill of six and a stamina of twelve, so another big, meaty boy-slash-girl-slash-plant. Big, meaty plant. Does seem to love long fights, Robin Waterfield. Like This will be pretty easy, but it'll take me a little while. So anyway, once again, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the roots. I came so close to a clean sweep, but it just managed to stick in a tiny bit of damage right at the end, reducing me to 17. But otherwise, yeah, very, very straightforward fight, even if it did take some time. You continue through the cursed forest. The leaves are brown and swollen beyond their normal size. There is a constant dripping of vile liquid from the leaves onto the soggy ground. Late in the afternoon, or so you guess it to be, for the sun is usually invisible beyond the seething brown mist, you come across a definite trail tending to your left. You dread to think what manner of creatures may have made a trail in this doomed place. Will you follow the trail or continue through the trackless trees? Trackless trees, please! I'm going to go out on a limb and say that whatever I run into is not going to be friendly. And presumably there is one old man somewhere within this forest that we haven't yet found. You leave the thicket of holly bushes behind and press on through the gloomy dusk. After a kilometre or so you come across a jumble of boulders scattered among the trees as if they were gigantic hailstones. Once you have checked that none of them is a disguised boulder beast, there's another little reference, you decide that this is as good a spot as any to spend the night. As you settle yourself down a Komodo lizard arrives the same idea as you. The winner will have a bed for the night. So Komodo Lizard has a skill of six, a stamina of eight. Once again, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Komodo Lizard. It reduced me to 15 stamina points, so I'm going to take the opportunity to have my last provision, Mushroom Stroganoff, making me up to 19 stamina. Surrounded as you are by the evil of this baneful place, your dreams are inevitably troubled. My dreams tonight, I think, are going to be largely focused around rolling 2d6 many, many times. You seem to see a giant serpent coiled around the forest and squeezing. As the forest contracts, it turns into a mocking face whose mouth is Istra's pit and whose laughter becomes the chilling shriek you heard from the hillside. Nice callback. You are being drawn into the mouth, and you are dimly aware that Ishtar's shriek is being echoed by your own screams. Now you are scrabbling at the ground to stop yourself being sucked into the gaping moor. Will you give up the struggle and let yourself go, or not? I mean, it's always tempting to just give up the struggle. That's, I think, going to be the big mood for 2023. Just giving up the struggle and letting yourself go. Uh, but... I feel as a fantasy protagonist, I probably need to show a little bit more backbone than that. So let's continue struggling. The struggle is useless and merely drains you. Deduct one power. Power now 11. You slip down, endlessly down into the darkness. Then you seem to be flying through tunnels at such a speed that anything you pass is just a blur until you reach a grotesque figure. 
He is huge and flabby. He squats like some vast pile of slime in the middle of a cavern. You can see inside his mind and it squirms with all the nightmares of the world. For he is Morpheus, Ishtar's lieutenant and the source of all bad dreams. Will you attack him or not? I mean, attacking the Lord of Nightmares in a dream seems like the worst idea, but I am kind of curious to find out. I mean, who knows, maybe I can take him out and make my journey through this blasted hellscape a little easier. He puts up no resistance, and in your dream you cut him to pieces, slashing ferociously, as if to avenge all the races of Titan. But since he is the source of nightmares, and since you are in a nightmare, in killing him you kill your dream body, and it is no longer connected to your sleeping self. Your power is drained, your physical body jerks once and is still forever. Anyone who finds your corpse will wonder at its unmarked state. So, adventure is over. And I think I've been recording long enough that I can stop there. I don't think I'm going to invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule. Shame to die. I guess I knew it was a bad idea. But I imagine the prestige that would have accrued from taking out the Lord of Nightmares in a nightmare. That would have been a great, great story. Well, I'm going to go away and I'm going to try again to defeat Phantoms of Fear. And then I'm going to come back to you in a couple of seconds with some of my traditional closing remarks. Tatty bye. Firstly, an errata. I should have generated my power with 2d6 plus 6, not 1d6 plus 6. That could potentially have made a big difference with the dream fight I had with the snow ghost. I think there's a lesson there about not assuming that you know the rules and can get away with just skimming over them. Secondly, I think this one is really worth playing, but there's a lot of elements I kind of need to spoil to have the discussions I want to have. I definitely recommend having a bash at this one yourself before having me discuss the heck out of it. It's another of those books where the specifics of the design is absolutely central to my enjoyment of it. I do want to note as well that left was actually the correct path all along. Turns out that going right in the opening dream sequence is more trouble than it's worth. I knew good old left wouldn't let me down. This is an extremely ambitious game book, and for me that ambition carries it through even when elements of the design get frustrating. There's so much imagination and care being put into it that I found it impossible not to like. I really felt as if I was playing some kind of Lynchian nightmare in which the ordinary rules of life were suspended and I descended from something recognisable and sane to something completely alien and terrifying. The journey through the forest and into the pit has echoes of Dante descending into hell in the Divine Comedy. I thought it was great. It feels so fresh and yet familiar at the same time. A fantastic riff on classic fantasy tropes. I love the way in which the familiar forest encounters, your boars and your bears, give way to stranger creatures and then really bizarre, unearthly creatures as you finally approach Ishtar's realm. It's handled really well. It's just excellent writing and design. The big gimmick here 
is the dreaming world versus the waking world. And I really like how that's done as well. There's a bit where you're given the option of just walking into the sea. And which of us hasn't wanted to do that at some point in the last three years? The interplay between the inner and outer world is something I find utterly fascinating. The dreams are an appropriate level of weird too, and I enjoy how they reference other adventures and other places from fighting fantasy. I really like the idea of these two worlds being, in a sense, equally real, because it's something that I think is very true in our own world, that our inner world of experience is just as real as the external world of experience. Some of the dream sequences had an almost biblical cast. I suspect Waterfield's background as a classicist may have influenced him, because obviously in the classical world, dreams and symbolic dreams are a very big thing. The imagery here is big and brash, and it feels intensely consequential. It's dreaming turned up a notch from what most people experience, and that's exactly what you want in a heroic fantasy story. You don't want dreams about teeth falling out, being late for school, or having to do public speaking naked. You want something that feels appropriate to the level of threat that Ishtar and his minions represent. It gets even better when you find Ishtra's lair and you're given the ability to shift between the dreaming and waking world almost at will as both worlds overlap in his realm. This adds a bewildering but awesome level of complexity to affairs as encounters can be avoided in the real world by slipping into a dream but you may find that you face even more dangers on the other side. It's so complex, and the clear demarcation between the waking and the dreaming in the earlier part of the book Breaking Down illustrates the power of this evil that you're facing so well. It is also handled very straightforwardly in the text, with a asterisk next to a section heading telling you that you can move into the dream world, and a hash sign in the dreaming world telling you can transition to the waking. It is really, really light touch mechanics. It feels like a very powerful approach and I think there's actually a lot of design space in flagging certain sections with a sign that tells you there is a hidden exit or a particular approach you can take to solving it. Um, yeah, there's, there's something there that I'd be very, very interested to explore. Of course, which fighting fantasy author can resist adding a new mechanic to the game? And of course, Robin Waterfield is no exception, and he adds the power mechanic. Now, there's a question regarding new mechanics, which is how much do you actually make use of them? The temptation is always to try and put loads and loads in, but I think that a light touch can sometimes be better, and actually here, the magic and the power is done with a relatively light touch. The magic in particular manages to add flavour and give you the impression that you're an elf shaman character rather than a, a human warrior who is the sort of default fighting fantasy protagonist. It manages to add flavour without making everything too complicated and detracting from the purity of the system. As I say, the temptation with a new idea is always to really play it up, but that isn't always the right decision. I like that you can make the occasional use of magic without it feeling throwaway. Now, power is a much bigger part of the system overall and this plays into the magic as well because and again this is quite spoilery there is a metagame of collecting power and you're never explicitly told 
oh, you'd better collect all of the power you can. It just emerges through playing the game book. As soon as I noticed that my power was ratcheting up, I was thinking, oh, I hope this pays off later. And I was delighted to find that it does pay off later because you're not going to be able to deal with some of the really tough bits of the last third of the book without a very high power score. Now, this means that actually the magic isn't there to help you through encounters in the early part of the book. It's there to effectively try and sneakily drain your power so that you're a bit under strength for the final assault on Ishtar's realm. And some people I've seen online really seem to hate that the magic is there only to try and get you to spend power. And they dislike that when you get to Ishtar's realm, you're told you can't cast any more spells. I like it. I think it's a great bait and switch. It makes sense that Dream Shaman would have access to magic. It makes the character feel like an elf, and it gives you a nice moment of feeling clever when you realise you shouldn't be casting any spells at all. You should just hoard your power so that you've got a better chance at the end. And it ties into the fact that there's two ways to beat the game book. One requires a very high power score and some, frankly, absurdly lucky dream fights. It's a relatively easy path to find, but it's a very unlikely path to actually win unless you fancy cheating your way through the trilogy of horrible dream fights that you'll need to make in order to get to the final boss. And I like having that easy-to-find path, but it does highlight that the dream fights feel rather underdone from a system's perspective. The fighting is extremely basic, and I don't like the slight advantage going to the enemy each time. I do want to flag one dream fight with a demonic creature that you can't actually hurt. The only way to win is to win three rounds in a row, otherwise you'll just get all the life sucked out of you. And that one fight feels really exciting and really consequential, and it should have been the mechanic for all of the dream fights, like an easy dream fight, you should need to win one round of combat, a hard one, you should need to win two rounds of combat in a row, and the more challenging ones, three, seems about right. And it illustrates that a really dull system, which it is, can be enlivened by some good writing that contextualises it, and some spot roles that tie into that context. Uh, it helps in the case of this particular dream fight that there is a characteristically great and uncanny Ian Miller illustration accompanying it. Now, the second approach to the book is the more familiar collect a bunch of items with numbers stamped on them and combine them Voltron style into a single much larger item to defeat the final boss. It feels like maybe there's one too many items you have to collect, but that's a personal taste thing. One reason I like Forest of Doom so much is that you're only actually looking for two pieces of a hammer. It feels much more manageable than the later Challenge Annika scavenger hunts. The fact that things get a lot more difficult in the second half makes exploring the final section to find the last piece of the puzzle you need a bit like hard work. But the sudden difficulty spike does make thematic sense as you penetrate into Ishtar's realm. Uh, it's also much more forgivable in a book where there is an easier-to-find path to victory, provided you're prepared to cheat on a few dice rolls to get there, which I totally am, and I certainly was when I was a child. 
I love the forest setting. I think I am predisposed to like game books set in a forest. I think it might be my favourite biome for game books. I like that they constrain movement like in a dungeon. You don't have total freedom to move through a forest. But at the same time, the fact that you're in the outside world, you get more information than you would in a dungeon crawl. And there's a whole range of things that you can come across that feels more varied and interesting than a dungeon's rooms, which get kind of tedious after a while, I think. And there's nothing stopping you from doing the really surreal, strange and incongruous encounters that make dungeons fun. You can do all of those in a forest setting, provided you write it correctly. And here I like how big the forest manages to feel despite being quite simply drawn. And that's because you're given multiple paths through the forest that don't directly connect to each other. And that sells you on the idea that this is a large place. I mean, it's actually quite linear in the end, but the fact that you can strike out in these different directions, it just makes it feel like a geographical location rather than a corridor pretending to be a geographical location. The range of forest-appropriate encounters are fantastic. They do a great job of selling the fantasy. I really like that. There's lots of different ways to go. And I like the fact that this section is not dependent on you having any particular items, which again feels more appropriate to a forest setting. I will say that I think Ian Miller is the perfect illustrator for this game book. His work has a strong Warhammer feeling to it, the sense of chaos perverting the natural order of things. He's so good at doing weird forests, weird trees, weird natural locations, as well as, to be fair, weird cities. He's just a great illustrator for Reality is Breaking Down. You also get a really nice foraging for provisions set piece. I really like that. And again, it feels appropriate to being an elf who lives off the land. There's also a later bit where you will lose only like a couple of points of stamina if you don't have any provisions left. But again, it sells you on the idea that these are more than just health tokens. Now, obviously, it's a bit weird me claiming that I found like fish and chips and sarg paneer in the forest. But I will tell you that I once found an untouched stack of Chinese food piled by a wall. Food for at least four people still neatly sealed in its tubs, stacked next to a wall. And I've often wondered what the story behind that was. I didn't eat it, obviously, I'm not insane. But, yeah, it's entirely possible that someone wandering through the forest might have discarded some neatly wrapped fish and chips. Don't write to me and tell me that's nonsense. This is not a perfect book by any stretch of the imagination. So the fights, there's probably too many of them, and many of them probably have too much stamina. It's an interesting choice because what that does is low skill, high stamina, it makes it more likely that you will take a bit of damage from every encounter, which makes stamina loss mostly a slow dripping away of your life rather than a sudden stop when something hard just smacks you about the face. And the fact that it takes a while to resolve them means that they're a little bit dull, maybe as individual fights, but it does create slow burning tension in the aggregate as your stamina slowly drains away. As I say, there's probably too many fights. There's nothing wrong with any of them, apart from one, which I'll talk about in a moment. 
and Waterfield gets that you can use fights to tell stories about the setting and so they get steadily weirder as you go into weirder bits of the forest. That's great. I think it could have used less fights and maybe some more involved NPC encounters. I'd have loved to have met maybe another wood elf or two in the forest who you can maybe learn stuff from or maybe they could become antagonists because they're trying to save the world as well. And I didn't find a single old man in my playthrough which feels like an oversight. So that one irritating fight is one where you're trying to take down a series of dark elves one at a time before their mates show up to help them. And it's a kind of running fight and you've got four rounds to take out each elf before the next one rocks up and then suddenly you're fighting two elves at the same time. Fine, absolutely fine in theory. Six is a lot to get through. It does take a while. But where it falls down is that once each elf has a mate helping them, the book replaces the usual rules for fighting multiple opponents with the additional opponent being able to hit you automatically for two stamina each round. And that's not a good revision because it penalises the player without explaining why the rules are different and harsher for this particular instance. It's a shame because it's otherwise a well-designed encounter. There is something exciting about fighting this running battle with the Dark Elves, trying to kill them before their mates arrived. That's cool. You didn't need to add this extra rule on top of that. It was already doing something fun and interesting. Now, I'm not saying you can never do a fight where you're fighting multiple opponents and one of them gets to hit you automatically. I think you just need to think about where it makes sense to do that. So let's say you're fighting two foes in a narrow corridor. They're coming at you from either end of the corridor. You may have to turn your back on one to attack the other. That would justify the opponent getting free damage in. But basically, if you can't come up with a reason to mess with the rules that make sense in world, don't mess with the rules for the sake of it. Systems creativity should always go hand in hand with narrative creativity. Um, a few more just sort of disparate observations. There's quite a few places to lose skill, which makes the skill potion worth taking for once. Uh, though the random nature of the provisions being from 2 to 12 means that stamina is also well worth a punt. There's lots of references to other books in the series. That's a treat for fans. It's nice to have those references because it gives them a sort of emotional connection as well. And it's a testament to how well fleshed out the world manages to feel, despite being cobbled together by disparate writers in a very scattershot fashion over the years. Overall, I'd say Phantoms of Fear aims high and only just misses its target. And it misses without compromising its overall vision and in ways that I think are interesting as much as they are frustrating. It is easily the best thing Robin Waterfield has put out under the Fighting Fantasy banner so far. It's not always the cheapest to get second-hand, but I think I managed to get mine for between £10 and £15, and I have seen it on sale for under a tenner once or twice, so if you're prepared to be patient and bide your time, you might be able to pick it up for a steal. That's all from me for this episode. Join me in October when we'll be returning to everyone's favourite hive of scum and villainy, Port Blacksand, as we play Midnight Rogue. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, 
Why not leave me a little review to help boost the profile of this podcast, or better yet, tell a friend you think might enjoy it. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.